Hi, this is Chandra Brigman, and you're listening to Live from the Cafe, recorded live at Venture Cafe Cambridge, where innovation is for everyone. The following keynote address by Bruce Tannenbaum, Manager of Technical Marketing for Vision, AI, Robotics, and Autonomous Applications at MathWorks, was given at Venture Cafe Cambridge's Annual Robotics and AI Connect Night. In this talk, Bruce Tannenbaum presents key factors for successful projects and illustrates the importance of these factors using case studies from diverse vision applications, including automated driving and crop harvesting. Hi, everyone. Okay, we'd like to get started. We've got a great panel here for you tonight. Uh, my name is Bruce Tannenbaum. Uh, I'm a technical marketing manager at MathWorks. And I'm going to be talking to you today about key factors to successful projects in, in robotics and AI. So the things I'm going to be talking about are um, going to be basically machines and systems. Um, not necessarily in the last couple of sessions we heard some about some great topics in finance or uh, e-commerce, um, other areas. Uh, uh, we're talking about AI that goes into robots and cars and other kinds of devices, you know, so machines, right, real-world machines. All right, so first I'm going to give a brief introduction on MathWorks. Uh, for those of you that may not be familiar, how many of you have ever used MATLAB before? Raise your hand. Okay, so I'm going to go through this pretty quick then. Uh, but just so that you know, we're, we've gotten pretty big. We've got about uh, 3 million users now of our tools. We've got about 4,500, over 4,000 employees. Um, MATLAB is pretty popular, contrary to some opinions uh, in some user communities. You know, we're still here, and people are still using MATLAB. And it's not just a university tool. It's used uh, in many uh, companies. Uh, and as well as in startups, and we have a program specifically for startups, okay, that I don't know how many of you are familiar with. Um, we su support about, was it over 3,000 startups around the world, um, 174 incubators or accelerators in 59 different countries. So there's an awful lot. And we actually have on the panel tonight several members of our startup program here talking about their experiences. Um, in AI and robotics, and it's not going to be, so this is not some sort of company pitch. I'm not, we're not talking about our tools. We're really just talking about the kinds of challenges that engineers experience when building AI and robotics-related projects. Okay. So if you're curious about how you qualify to be in the startup program, you have to be in business for fewer than five years. You have to generate less than a million dollar in revenue and have no more than 25 employees. All right. So now, now going on to my talk, okay? So let's start off with a couple of really cool examples. We're going to dive into them a little bit more later. I'm going to talk about very specific companies as we go along. But let's watch a video. So this is a, a robot called uh, Agile Justin. He was built by DLR, which is a German aerospace center. He's got uh, uh, a stereo camera you know, in sort of that head face area, along with an RGB depth camera. He's got tactile sensors on his fingers. He's got uh, uh, sensors in, in joints to be able to sense pressure of movement. You know, so like if you were to shake his hand, he's able to do things like catch balls and throw balls. Uh, there's a ton of different things they do, and it's a, an experimental robot that they use to figure out new algorithms, how to, how to control a robot, how to 
how to help a robot perceive the environment. Okay. So here's another story. This is a company called Voyage. They are a, uh, what's known as a robo-taxi company. They've built a level three autonomous vehicle uh, based off of this. Uh, it's just a stock Ford Fusion uh, that they that they got, and they outfitted it with the LiDAR sensor and cameras on top. Uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of cameras inside sort of uh, where the rearview mirror is, um, and they have LiDAR as well. Level three, okay, so that requires a whole other slide. The question was, can, you def can I define level three autonomy? Um, I'm going to give it my best in a short version without our official slide. So level one and two are ADAS type things. You might have heard of like uh, your, when your car beeps when you're changing a lane, right? Or uh, detecting uh, cross traffic when you're backing up, just beeping at you. Level three is the first level at which you start to move into an autonomous vehicle that controls itself, that drives around a neighborhood. Level three is much simpler, though, than level four, level five. Level five is the highest. So level five, you would imagine, is a car that can drive around the streets of Boston in rush hour, right? It's a very complicated environment. There's a lot going on, a lot for it to figure out. It's going to be quite a while for us to get to level five autonomous vehicles. But level three, so the car that they're driving, this is in the Villages, which is a retirement community in Florida. Uh, they call it geofence, so it's only in a specific area. They have to compete with uh, golf carts, bicyclists, and pedestrians, and the occasional stray dog. That's about it on the roads down there. It's very simple. All the roads are very clearly marked, very cleanly laid out. It's a very simple environment, and they're providing taxiing service with this. Okay, So level three is about the simplest car that you get that's autonomous. And they were able to build this in about three months. And that, to me, is astounding. Now, was it perfect after three months? No. But was it? did it get them off the ground and started and get them to their next level of funding? Yes. So these are two very different types of systems, right? You have a robotic system. We have an autonomous car. But there's a lot of common challenges that these two systems have, right? When you're talking about autonomous systems, these are multi-domain systems, right, They're with highly complex algorithms. So you've got AI as part of that. That can be sometimes the AI can be doing the perception, right? So you get data in from the camera. You're perceiving pedestrians or you're perceiving other cars. Um, it may also be doing controls. You may have AI, like with reinforcement learning, you might have AI actually deciding when to change a lane or, or when to stop or start, okay? But these are, these are highly complex systems, and they require multi-domain knowledge, knowledge, excuse me, knowledge across many different domains and that most engineers don't have that, right? So that means that you have to have large teams. You need to have experts in a variety of different areas. And these all, all these people need to work together. So one of the problems that they have is that if, if one person makes a design choice in one part, uh, like let's say in the AI, that can have a huge impact on the entire system, okay? That's what I mean about design flaws might not be found until late in the process. And then they want to be able to test with real world real-world hardware. So in the robot case, they had the robot. They had the physical hardware. And they and in the taxi the example, they had a uh, Ford Fusion that they were able to drive around. And um, they wanted to be able to try their algorithms out on the fly. So these are the kinds of challenges that they were dealing with. All right. And so what I want to talk about are, are the, when we look at projects like this, the three key factors that we see from the MathWorks perspective of what has enabled their projects to be successful. The first one is simulation, and it's the ability to create designs 
to, sorry, to create scenarios to be able to test their designs, okay, and to be able to test uh, a variety of different scenarios, things that are hard, things that are that are easier, and also to work out kinks before they actually get to the real hardware. Another is integration, okay. This is bringing together those multiple domains. So you have you have a perception system, uh, you have controls. Perception system is dealing with video frames, maybe one frame every 30 seconds. That's what's typical. Um, and then you have a control system. Controls are real-time systems, right? They they or maybe they run in the in the milliseconds range. Um, there, these are very different things, and and there's different math that's involved in these different things. And you need ways to be able to pull everything together, all these different parts. Okay? The third factor then is workflow. Okay? How do you get from the ideas from uh, an individual engineer working on one small part uh, and then to be able to test it out you know, using the simulation, integrating with other parts, and then getting it into a robot, getting it to run on the robot and run on or run in a car. So these are the three key elements. And we're going to go into each of these a little bit more. I'm going to start with simulation. Okay, so simulation, and and what I mean by simulation is um, the, the the there are many different kinds of simulation. One flavor of simulation might be uh, a sort of a, a world simulator, if you will, like in in robotics, gazebo is a simulator for the world in which your your robot would drive in, and so you would try out maybe a path planning algorithm in this artificial world. And find, you know, and tune it up a little bit until it works well enough that you might actually put it on a robot. Uh, people are starting to use the Unreal Gaming Engine for uh, uh, automated driving, okay, or autonomous vehicles uh, to be able to make up uh, virtual worlds uh, much more easily than trying to capture terabytes of data, you know. So uh, going out and driving millions of miles, still driving millions of miles with your car might not still capture all the scenes you want. You know, or all the different scenarios. Maybe it's, uh, you know, you're you're doing all your driving in Arizona, but you really need icy scenes. Well, that doesn't happen very often in Arizona. Right? Uh, and then there are other kinds of simulation you might want to do. For a robot, you might want to do physical modeling simulation, where you're modeling the mechanics of what the arm on on the agile Justin robot might do. Okay. So some of the values, some of the reasons why you're going to do simulation. The first one is to be able to do that early testing. So if you have a design idea and you want to know if it works, you kind of, you, you've written your own code, maybe you have a little bit of data you're testing it with, and it works great, fine. Bring it into a simulator, and now you can really get a better sense of how it works, and particularly how it works in combination with other pieces. Uh, scenario generation can be really important. So AI learns by training data, right? That's one of the big takeaways from the last session earlier. And but there are many situations in the real world when you're driving a car, for example. Let's say you're trying to train an AI to be able to recognize um, an oncoming vehicle that's heading right towards you. Well, that's a kind of a dangerous situation. You don't want to capture real-world data doing that, or you might you know, destroy a whole bunch of vehicles uh, doing that, or whatever. It's not good, right? So, But a scenario, a, a simulation, can be used to help you uh, build these kind of scenarios that are that are expensive or particularly dangerous, right? And then there are certain kinds of uh, algorithms where simulation is required. It's just part of what you need to do to be able to to build the thing that you're doing. Uh, reinforcement learning, right? That's a that's a form of deep learning that where you're training an actor based upon constant trial and error 
uh, of interaction with a world and with a, a, a policy, if you will, that tells you whether you're doing well or, or not well, right? Um, so simulation is required in order to be able to train that algorithm. It doesn't train on data. It sort of has to simulate the world every time and then sort of, because it's trying to deal with, reinforcement learning is trying to deal with dynamics where a car might be, you know, it's often associated with steering. So uh, your car, you know, as you're steering, you're, you're changing what the, the, the situation that you're in. And so you don't always have data for every situation. You need to do simulation. And then finally, closed-loop simulation is a, is a relatively new thing that I've seen with uh, the Unreal Gaming Engine. Uh, and I'm going to get into that with uh, a customer example here. This is Ford Motor Company. And we've worked with them on building of uh, 3D virtual driving environments uh, for their work in autonomous driving and active safety. And so what they did was they would build these, in the Unreal Gaming Engine, they would build these 3D worlds uh, with cars, uh, with other actors that they would set up, and then you'd have the ego car, the car you're driving. Uh, and then they would also generate simulated LiDAR data. That's the picture here on the left. And um, using this data, they would drive around in this artificial world to be able to uh, test out their algorithms, right? To test out how they're doing. And they built, and this is closed loop. So what happens when you, when you make a turn in this virtual world, all of a sudden you have a new scene and so, or, or a new view. And the, um, uh, so you have this closed loop where you, you take an action and, and the data now is different based upon the action you've taken. And you can't do that with millions of miles of recorded data. The data is what it is. You know, the car that gathered the data either turned left or it didn't. Um, but with a simulated world, you can, you know, drive through data where you're turning left and, and create that. All right. So the next thing we're going to talk about are, is integration. Okay. So uh, if you're in robotics at all, you've heard of ROS before. And ROS is really great. ROS stands for Robotic Operating System. It's an open source project. And MathWorks has fully embraced this. In fact, we have our own ROS toolbox for being able to use ROS to connect uh, things that you've designed in MATLAB and Simulink to robots, physical hardware that you've designed that works with ROS. Okay? Um, ROS is, an, is a method of integration uh, when you're working with a robot to pull together all of these very different parts. Uh, you know, it would allow, you know, there are, there are different algorithms for moving the, the controllers on the robot arm or, or the, the driving the, uh, the motors and the wheels for a ground vehicle. Um, there's also a, a simulation environment that Ross works with. That's the gazebo simulator. Okay. There's probably others as well. Um, and so by having, by using this integration tool, uh, with MATLAB, you can bring all of your work together. Uh, and so integration is really important because if the only time you integrate is when you put the code on the actual device and you don't have different ways of testing the parts, um, you're going to find, you're, you're going to spend a lot of effort and get, find the design flaws only at the end of your process. So, uh, the Voyage, the taxi company I talked to you about earlier, they're a perfect example. They used Simulink. So that what they were trying to do is to figure out how to, uh, accelerate and decelerate the car. And so they use Simulink for controls, for controlling the acceleration. Uh, but they used ROS because inside of the car in the trunk actually, connecting up all the sensors was a, a full desktop class computer. Um, might actually have been more than desktop class. Running everything and it was running ROS, 
right? And it pulled all the data together. And so this framework allowed them to, uh, Ross, along with uh, our tools for developing controls algorithms, and along with the AI that they developed, they pull all this together, and this allowed them to test their cars out on the road. And using our tools and simulating for generating code and generating ROS nodes, they were able to try out their controls algorithms right away. And what they found was um, the best algorithms for, for the best stopping and starting actually made the taxi feel really jerky to the elderly people that lived in that community. And it would stop and start too fast. And, they, and so, yes, it kept them safe, but boy, was it annoying. So they were able to tweak the algorithm so that it was more gradual. And it, and, but they would never have gotten that feedback as early in the design process if they didn't have ROS and Simulink and an integration platform enabled to test out their ideas with their actual uh, customer base. So then one more thing here on, on AI tools. Uh, so you've all heard about PyTorch and TensorFlow, I'm sure. These are the popular platforms out there. Uh, there's also MATLAB for AI. I could talk at great length, but I only have 20 minutes. Um, talk at great length about uh, the AI in MATLAB. But the one thing I wanted to point out is that there's this uh, format called Onyx, uh, which enables you to, exchange, uh, to move AI models from one platform, from one tool chain to another. And this is really important because you may have one researcher working in PyTorch, another researcher working in TensorFlow, and they want to be able to work together. And by using Onyx, they're able to share models. Or in our case, customers are able to get, you know, they find a model that does something that they really like, and it's, it seems really good, and they want to try it out, but it's not quite right. So they bring it into MATLAB. They'll tweak it a little bit. Maybe they'll do some transfer learning. And then they'll use our tools for code generation to be able to generate GPU code so that way they can run it on a board. I'll talk a little bit later about a customer that's, that does that. Okay, so now about the entire workflow. Okay, so when you look at AI tools, they're really just focused on one part here, this middle part, AI modeling, model design and tuning, right? There's a whole series of tools you need to be able to do data preparation. Uh, you also need to have your, your human experts, whether it's the doctors uh, or, or, you know, depending upon whatever application you have, um, or people that know exactly, you know, what the different shoes are. Maybe that's the metadata you've already labeled, you already have. But there's also, when you're building a machine and you're putting AI in a machine, there's this whole other part you need to worry about of how do you get that into, integrated with the rest of the system. And that's what system design and deployment's about, right? So the integration and simulation I was talking about before is part of the system design, about getting it into that system, and then deployment is about getting it onto a device. And so here's a customer of ours, uh, Musashi Saimitsu uh, Industry. They are uh, they sell automotive parts, and, and so they have to inspect these parts and make sure that they're perfectly functional. They developed uh, an AI model in MATLAB for detecting the abnormalities, you know, little, little, so here's the device down here. This is actually a blow-up image. So there might be a little chunk of it missing sometimes, and they need to be able to find those. Uh, so they gathered data, they labeled their data, um, they trained a, a deep learning-based model, and then they had deployed that to uh, NVIDIA's uh, Jetson board. And so they're, based, they're a perfect example of the complete AI workflow I was just talking about on the previous slide of, of the kinds of things people need to do in real-world systems, that their work doesn't end when they have a model, that model needs to sit somewhere, needs to be participate in a system and, and, be, a part, and be a part of it. So in the case of robotics, 
Um, they still have to be part of a system, but it's even more complicated. They have all of these different things to deal with, right? There's the platform, that's the robot hardware itself. There are sensors, there's the perception of being able to use the sensors to understand what's going on in the world around it. In the case of Agile Justin, it's recognizing that a ball is heading towards them so that they can know to catch it. Uh, planning and deciding, that would be the algorithms to figure out, okay, uh, ball's coming towards me now, I need to move out my hand to figure out to catch it, right? And then controls is to actuate the motors. There's all these different parts. And so DLR, the organization that, that built Agile Justin, used our tools for uh, the, a complete workflow. What they focused on was the controllers. Those are the motors for the arms. Um, and they were able to generate code for, HIL stands for hardware in the loop testing. So that way they could, basically that means they were able to generate code to run on the robot that ran in real time to be able to make sure that their algorithm, their optimizations for decide, you know, how hard do they need to uh, uh, spin up the motors to be able to throw the ball and when do they let go with the fingers, optimizing all of that, uh, that that was able to work well. That was one of the key things that they were focused on in that project. All right, so we went through the key, three key factors. And so now, uh, so that's the end of my talk. Uh, we have time for a few questions and then we're gonna go into the Live from the Cafe is produced and disseminated by the Venture Cafe Foundation, a nonprofit organization striving to better connect the innovation community. To learn more about our events and resources, please visit us online at VentureCafeCambridge.org or come visit us at One Broadway in Cambridge, Massachusetts every Thursday from 3 to 8 p.m.